The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Catherine Pompilio with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for February 6, 2022. This week, over 200,000 people are without power as winter storms move across Midwestern and Southern states. Snow, sleet, and freezing rain have caused about 70,000 outages in Texas and 115,000 in Tennessee. The power outages are reminiscent of Texas's deadly winter storm last year, where hundreds died because of the failure of the power grid, which trapped millions in freezing darkness with no running water. Following last year's storm, Texas updated its grid to meet higher standards. This year's storm marks the first significant test of the grid. For today's archive episode, I chose an episode from February 2021, in which Alexander Class and Alan Rosenstein spoke about last year's winter storm and power outages in Texas, as well as the future of energy policy, both for Texas and for the United States. I'm Alan Rosenstein, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, February 23rd, 2021. For more than a week now, Texas has been struggling with a massive power outage caused by record low temperatures. Millions have been without power, heat, and running water, and at least dozens have been confirmed to have died as a result. All states are confronting extreme weather, but Texas is unique in that its electricity is almost completely independent from the rest of the United States' grid. This has at times lowered costs and increased innovation in the Texas energy markets. But as the current crisis shows, Texas's energy exceptionalism comes at a cost. My colleague, Alexandra Klass, is the distinguished McKnight University professor at the University of Minnesota Law School. She's a nationally recognized expert on energy law and policy and recently wrote about the Texas energy crisis for lawfare. I spoke with her about the current situation and the future of energy policy, both for Texas and for the United States. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 23rd. Alex Class on the Texas Energy Crisis. Alex, thanks so much for joining me. You recently wrote a piece for Lawfare about the ongoing Texas crisis, and I was just hoping you could give us a brief overview of what's going on. Yes, uh, thanks, Alan. I'm happy to be here, and I'm glad to talk about it. So, you know, the Texas crisis, electricity crisis, and then the water crisis in the aftermath is really the mix of a lot of different things. Some are specific to Texas, some are broader. You know, one of course is climate change and just a changing climate. We're seeing more extreme heat, extreme cold, extreme wetness in terms of hurricanes um, and floods, and then extreme drought. 
as well. We, we had a taste of that um, in California this fall with the heat waves and the fires. Um, we're seeing that now this winter. We'll see other extreme weather in the spring. A big aspect of this, though, are conditions that are fairly unique to Texas when you look at the Texas electricity system, which is um, and uh, electricity law and energy law is you know, what I teach, what I write about. And when I teach energy law, we talk a lot about Texas because Texas is really unique in a lot of ways, some positive, some, some negative. So Texas is a really big state. And unlike any other state in the country, it has its own electric grid that decades ago it put together ERCOT, the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. The, the United States, uh, continental United States, is divided into three uh, massive grids or interconnections. There's the eastern interconnection that goes approximately to the Rocky Mountains. There's the western interconnection that goes west from there you know, to, the, to the Pacific coast. And then there's Texas, which, uh, and it's, a, it's not all of Texas, it's about 90% uh, of Texas gets its electricity from ERCOT. And all of these grids, you know, started with utilities sort of informally sort of sharing transmission lines, sharing energy. Um, and that's why there's a few, you know, utilities in parts of Texas that are tied to, to either the Eastern interconnection or the Western interconnection. But Texas kind of wanted to have its own grid because after the um, Federal Power Act was passed in the early 1900s, that allows federal regulation of the transmission of electricity in interstate commerce and the um, wholesale sale of electricity in interstate commerce. So Texas, by creating its own grid, is now not transmitting electricity in interstate commerce or selling um, at wholesale in interstate commerce. And that means there's no federal regulation of those transactions and sales and activities. And, you know, Texas, which is always um, and continues to sort of aspire to be its own nation in many ways, I always tell my students when it comes to electricity, Texas uh, really is in many ways its own country. And it's able to do that in part because it's so big. It spans two time zones. It's the same size as, you know, multiple states put together. It's got lots of fossil fuel resources, oil, gas, coal. It now has lots of renewable resources, solar and wind. And it also has population centers, massive population centers, all within a single state, which really no other state can claim to have. So this sort of self-contained grid has worked fairly well for it. It's also highly deregulated, lots of retail choice um, in terms of different electricity providers, being able to um, sell electricity to retail customers, so very different than what we have here in Minnesota, where we have regulated monopolies um, and you only have uh, you have no choice over your retail electricity provider, and, the, and those providers are heavily regulated by the state. So Texas has a, de a self-contained, fairly deregulated grid without the types of capacity markets that exist in some other restructured or deregulated states to make sure that there's enough sort of reserve capacity on hand. Um, and I can go into more detail about what capacity markets are and energy markets and how um, those markets work in other parts of the country. But the fact that we had this extreme cold weather in the entire state of Texas, Texas is so big, they figure, ah, we don't need other states so much because we can all, always call upon different parts of the state. Um, here, the entire state was plunged into cold weather and there were no regulations that required their gas wells, their gas plants, their nuclear plants, their wind turbines, any of their infrastructure and all the piping that leads to it to be insulated. 
just like people's homes are not insulated in Texas like they are in, let's say, Minnesota or Iowa. And, you know, the argument goes, well, this is a once in a hundred year or once in a 50 year event, then it doesn't make sense to spend the money. But if you don't spend the money, disaster can happen when everything freezes. So all the infrastructure froze up just like everyone's home uh, homes froze up. And because it's an isolated grid, they couldn't call on nearby power grids for help like they might be able to do, you might be able to do in the Eastern interconnection or the Western interconnection. There was no way to import that power. Texas usually has more than enough of its own energy resources. And last week they didn't. So that's a very long answer that only begins to start to answer part of your question. Now that that's a really helpful uh, overview and, and there's a lot there. So let me kind of try to take it in different pieces. So the first thing, and this just, I want to clarify, and this is something that confused me for, for a little bit at the beginning of this crisis. It seems to me that this is not kind of a, a standard capacity problem, right? You know, sometimes in particularly in hot summers, you can have too much demand on the grid. And if you have brownouts or blackouts or, or things of that nature here, it, it sounds like the problem wasn't so much that Texas doesn't have enough electricity, it's that Texas wasn't prepared to produce electricity when it's really, really cold, but they could have theoretically had they prepared better for it. Well, it's actually quite similar to what happens in the summer because the electric grid always has to be in perfect balance. You can't have too much, you can't have too little. You know, until we get much better um, and cheaper battery storage technology, you really can't store electricity like you can store oil or natural gas in reservoirs. So you always have to be making sure you have enough power on hand to meet the demand. And also keep in mind in Texas, um, because it's traditionally a warmer climate, most of the uh, most of the heat is coming from electricity, where up in you know, in the upper Midwest, most of our heat comes directly from natural gas. There, the natural gas is used to generate electricity in a power plant, and then people's homes and businesses have electric heat. So what we saw here is it was really cold everywhere. So everyone was using their electric heat, um, and they were using a lot more of it. And the grid operators had not anticipated that level of demand. So their forecasting was off. And then at the same time that their forecasting was off and they had more demand than they had, than they thought they had supply to meet, all of a sudden that supply dropped and the supply dropped because things were too cold. So they started shutting down. So the gas plants couldn't get the gas because pipes were frozen. Pipes were frozen and the nuclear, and one of their main nuclear plants went offline. Um, some of the wind turbines that all have, you know, in, in Iowa or Minnesota would have de-icing and have all sorts of winterization. They don't have those in Texas. They're not built that way. So some of the wind went offline, although that was a fairly minor problem. Wind energy actually overperformed um, in this crisis in Texas, whereas the gas and the coal and the nuclear underperformed. So it's really not that different from the situation that you would have in the summer. You just had too much demand and not enough supply. And, you know, Texas had always, by not having capacity markets, by basically not paying generators to have excess power around for situations like these, the concern about Texas not having capacity markets was always that something like this would happen in the summer, because that's a more frequent occurrence, that you have too much demand from air conditioning and perhaps not enough power to meet that. Here it happened in, in the winter, but it's the same phenomenon, too much demand, not enough supply. So let's turn to the 
the national regulatory system and, and talk about that for a second so that we can then compare how Texas does it alone. And hoping you could explain you know, what the role of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is, and in particular, how much leeway the commission gives to individual states. So you know, as you mentioned, in Minnesota, we have a certain kind of utility system, and then in California, they have some other kind of utility system. You know, how much of that is dictated by essentially what the Federal Commission states, and, and what sort of things was Texas trying to avoid? Is it just a general ideological opposition to federal regulation, the kind of Texas goat alone uh, approach? Or are there specific things that Texas wanted to do and has been able to do that it would not have been able to do under a federal regulatory regime? I would say a lot of it is sort of a Texas go it alone approach, that they've got enough energy. They really don't like federal interference in anything that they do. So The Federal Energy Regulatory Commission under the Federal Power Act, uh, as I mentioned before, regulates the transmission of electricity and interstate commerce. So um, how much, you know, different power providers or transmission lines can charge to transmit electricity, but also wholesale sales. So not retail sales. That's all done at the state level throughout the country but wholesale sales of electricity and interstate commerce. So that's, of course, is a sale for resale, just like it would be, um, you know, Target is a retailer, um, and then there are wholesalers that sell to Target. So it's those wholesale sales. So a sale from an electricity generator, let's say a wind farm or a gas plant, to a utility that then sells it at retail to customers or utilities selling, you know, to each other as, as they have excess power. So, you know, Texas all regulates that internally. But then we have to step back and look at some states have regulated monopolies. It used to be all states had regulated monopolies. So an electric utility would own the generation, it would own the transmission, and it would own the distribution lines. And so it owned you know, all parts of the system, and it was regulated by the State Public Utility Commission um, in terms of prices. Um, in the 1990s, just as other industries got deregulated or what we really, we really, it's not really deregulation. There's still regulation. It's technically called, you know, restructuring. They restructured their electricity market. So basically all of the East Coast, Texas, and a few Midwestern states, um, Illinois, Ohio are some, are some examples. They decided that they wanted more competition um, and that that would bring prices down. And of course, you know, California was a leader in this. And then you had um, the Enron scandal. And California kind of stopped and a lot of other states stopped as well. But in those restructured markets, the utilities were forced to sell off all their electricity generation. So now you have independent power producers that have that, but they kept their transmission lines and distribution lines. So essentially the utilities in those states are now what we call transmission and distribution utilities, but they, but they don't own any generation. Okay, well, where are they actually going to get that generation, the power to sell to their customers? So in those areas, they've created, FERC helped develop these regional markets. They're known as regional transmission organizations or independent system operators. And it's kind of hard to explain what they are without having a map. But basically, these are, you know, voluntary organizations of utilities and it's a it's it's kind of a quasi public quasi private nonprofit that runs the transmission system the utilities turn over their transmission lines they still own the lines but in terms of deciding where power is going to flow and how much it's going to cost is turned over to the RTOs and then the RTOs also run energy markets so people bid into the markets there's day ahead markets there's 15 minute markets 
to make sure that the grid is in balance. And they also do reliability for their area. So for instance, the upper Midwest and down as far as Arkansas and Louisiana are part of an 11 state mid-continent independent system operator or MISO. So it's 11 states, it's a huge region. The RTOs run the markets. I bring my energy law class to visit uh, the operations center for the northern part of MISO every year. And then there's also one in Indiana and then one further south in Arkansas. And so MISO is a huge region. PJM on the East Coast is another RTO. And so that's Pennsylvania and most of the East Coast states. There's a New England ISO, which is an RTO. And then California kind of has its own set of markets. And so does New York. New York's a single state one. And so ERCOT also runs those markets. But ERCOT is, the, uh, is, is a single state one. And it also provides a lot of retail choice to customers in a way that some of the other RTOs do and some don't. MISO is made up of utilities that are mostly in states that are still traditionally regulated. So, for instance, XL Energy, which serves the state of Minnesota, it serves kind of the Twin Cities area in the state of Minnesota. It, it's a traditionally regulated utility. Minnesota, so it owns generation, it owns transmission, it's own, it owns distribution. There's no retail competition, but it's still part of the MISO RTO and buys and sells power at wholesale on that and is part of that broader grid. There are some region of the, regions of the country where there, where there are no RTOs. So the Intermountain West, and the Southeast, because the utilities didn't want to be part of them there, although they're starting to think about joining RTOs. But these are big regional RTOs. You know, Their rules and prices are approved ultimately by FERC. So FERC has a lot of power over those RTOs. Of course, not so in Texas, because Texas has insulated itself from that kind of FERC regulation. There's another organization, NERC, that deals with reliability across the country, including in Texas. And so uh, NERC is the organization, again, its rules have to get approved by FERC as well. NERC is a nonprofit that makes sure that disasters like this don't happen. But one of the things that's gonna happen now, you know, after this disaster is both FERC and NERC are going to look at what went wrong, should there be, mandatory winterization of certain types of power assets nationwide. You know, what should we do to make sure this doesn't happen again? So it's not that there's no regulation, but there's a lot less regulations of the markets and prices in Texas than there are as compared to the MISO RTO, that region, PJM, or even the other transactions between utilities and some of the states that aren't part of RTOs. As I said, it's difficult to explain this without a map showing the different RTOs but you have multiple layers of state regulations, federal regulations, and then these regional organizations that uh, run the transmission grids in in the bulk of the country, as well as these markets. That's really helpful clarification, but let let me ask one more thing. Is it the case that had Texas been part of this national electrical grid and, and, and part of or, or more deeply embedded into kind of FERC's regulatory jurisdiction, and FERC here is the, the Federal uh, Energy Regulatory Commission, that they would have had to have better winterized all of their infrastructure? Or is it the case that really the downside for Texas in this situation was that when their systems failed, they were not able to tap into the electricity in in the rest of the country. I'm trying to figure out sort of who we should blame, if anyone, for the failure to winterize, whether this was a sort of Texas-specific problem or whether there actually is no such general requirement, even on the national level, and perhaps there, there should be. 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Yeah, you know, Texas had a big, you know, winter cold snap electricity problem, you know, during, you know, the Super Bowl in um, 2011. And there was a big report that cited in the, the article that was just published with Lawfare on that. So FERC actually did an investigation of that. And there were a lot of recommendations after that about winterizing these types of assets. But they were recommendations. Nothing was mandatory. So, you know, it is possible that NERC and FERC could could do some more mandatory things with regard to Texas, but that's very political. States don't like being told what to do. That's true for other states as well. And so FERC is always, you know, FERC and NERC may want to have more recommendations rather than mandatory things. That may change after this disaster. So I would, and even the governor, um, the Texas governor has called for mandatory winterization. Now, what, what does that mean? How much investment will actually happen? It's much cheaper to build that into new infrastructure than retrofit existing infrastructure. So we'll see what happens with these uh, mandates that have been called for. Oftentimes at the time of a disaster, there's all sorts of uh, you know strong statements made and then there's no follow through. So that's one piece of it. I mean, even in the current situation, I think there there could have been more um, mandatory requirements that they just weren't. The other thing that you asked, though, is, well, what about being able to import power from other regions? Um, and I think that may have helped here. We still need to get more facts about where the where the shortfalls were. But it, another problem was that even some of the region of uh, neighboring regions were also very cold. So the Southwest Power Pool, which is another RTO they also had you know, similar problems and had to do some minor rolling blackouts, but nothing to the extent of Texas. But I think they could have drawn more from MISO. MISO is a big, a big region. So it would have helped. Would it have solved all their problems? Probably not. But I do think it would have, it would have helped. At least it would have given the option to draw on power, particularly because if there was a connection between Texas and the rest of the country, Presumably, we would actually start to build some additional transmission lines, which we desperately need even within the existing RTOs to um, move power more quickly, more efficiently, more cheaply from different regions of the country. And there's a lot of great proposals from the National Renewable Energy Lab and others to try to do that. So if Texas were willing to have additional connections to the other RTOs, it would help in these sorts of situations. It would also help being able to move solar and wind and uh, more renewable energy around the country and make that low cost energy available over a wider space. You know, one thing that people say about these 
big regional RTOs is they basically act as their own battery because it's unusual to have, you know, cold weather or hot weather over an entire, let's say, 11 state area. It's always sunny somewhere. It's always windy somewhere. There's power available. And so it can meet demand in other parts of a larger region. Texas always tried to do that itself and was because it's a big state and usually was successful. But here was a time when they weren't. So to the extent that we can build the uh, long distance multi-state electric transmission lines to connect up larger parts of the country, it helps us on these potential disaster and reliability times like last week. But it also helps us integrate much more renewable energy into the electric grid, which helps us with reductions in greenhouse gas emissions and also helps us on cost because wind and solar are now our cheapest forms of electric energy. And it would make that available to a wider range of customers. As you point out, there is now general consensus that Texas made a mistake in not sufficiently winterizing its infrastructure. And it sounds like uh, even Texas Governor Greg Abbott sort of admits that. And I'm curious, how are we supposed to think about these decisions, especially when we can see the effects in retrospect? So, you know, for example, you know, we're, we both live in Minnesota. And as far as I know, though, correct me if I'm wrong, our infrastructure isn't designed or prepared for, you know, 120 degree weather, just given the climactic conditions. But maybe that's fine, you know, given that preparedness is always a question of risk versus cost, and you can't be 100% prepared. To what extent do you think that what Texas had done or not done, as it were, in, in winterizing for these kinds of extreme conditions, you know, was that unreasonable at the time? Um, are we just sort of Monday morning quarterbacking? And more generally, how do we think through these these questions of, of dealing with risk, but also not trying to eliminate it entirely? Because of course, that presumably would not be economically feasible. I mean, that is the fundamental question is how much do we invest in safety? How much do we invest in protecting against extreme but unusual events, right? There'd be a lot of lives saved if the maximum speed limit was 35 miles per hour everywhere, for sure. But we don't do that. We, we, we take that risk. You know, in the in the Texas situation, you know, the main reason that they've deregulated their markets, the main reason that they don't have a lot of mandates is because it results in cheaper energy, cheaper energy prices. And the question is, is it worth it if over, you know, a 10 year period, everyone in the state has cheaper electricity, cheaper energy, it's good for the economy, it's drawing business to the state. You know, Elon Musk just moved one of his big operations to Texas from California. People are saying that this is all good for Texas. Business is booming in Texas. So the question is, is that worth not investing the money to protect against this type of disaster if it lasts for one day, if it lasts for two days, if it lasts for a week? Right now, everyone is saying it's definitely not worth it. We need to do more investment. But there might be others that say, well, this is, you know, how we designed it and we've saved all this money and we've had all this economic development. Maybe, you know, maybe it's worth it. In terms of the markets, um, you know, well, one of the issues we haven't talked about yet is some of the, you know, $16,000, $20,000 electricity bills that some residents have received just from last week because electricity prices went so high because of all the retail choice in Texas. There are some retail providers that say, hey, you pay us. Here, here's what we're offering you. Pay $9.99 a month, and we'll just pass along the wholesale price of electricity to you, which is always much cheaper than the retail price of electricity. 
And so people of uh, those folks have had very low electricity bills as compared to if they had another provider. Well, when the price then goes up, you know, a thousand times because of the demand, you say, well, that's just how the market works. But don't we want to protect individuals against the market? We want a regulated market. Um, you know, there have been some quotes from the Harvard professor who helped design the Texas, generally the Texas markets in ERCOT. And the quote was, this is how the markets were designed to work. Well, that may be, but there's a big human cost to that. So then the question is, how do we want to regulate those markets so that people are not injured from that? And that's just a balance that we have to to figure out. Do you think there is the let's call it political capacity for this kind of regulation. And, and the reason I ask is there's there's a, a large political science literature on the extent to which voters reward politicians for taking precautions, for investments that lower risk over the long term. And the literature on this is pretty dispiriting uh, in my perspective in that voters don't seem to care, right? Voters are much more motivated, again, electorally, no, no matter what they say, but electorally they reward people who lower prices in the short term. And when 5, 10, 15 years later down the line, that causes problems, well, it's some other person's problem. And then, you know, conversely, it's, it's hard to win an election by saying your electricity costs are going to jump 12%. But in the long run, we predict this will lead to 17% reduction in brownouts over the long term. And so I guess my question is, do you think that this is a sort of thing that, that Texas can learn from? Or maybe this is the reason why we have a large, complex federal energy bureaucracy that can impose these kinds of short-term unpopular mandates, but are sufficiently politically insulated that they can they can take that long-term view. So you raise a really good point. And I think you're absolutely right that people will say, well, I'd rather have the lower costs. I don't want to really think about the future. But when they do think about it, it's times like now, right? Now they want that protection. And so, you know, they always say, um, you know, a crisis, uh, you, you never want to waste a good, a good disaster or a good crisis. Now is a time to force people to think about it. And I think if the regulators in Texas were to move forward now, there would be support for additional protections, both on the sort of consumer protection side in terms of maybe having better regulation of some of these retail providers, but also on saying, hey, we're going to require our power plant operators to winterize and to insulate so this doesn't happen again. I think you would have the political support to do that, but there's only a window of time to do that at either the federal level or the state level. You know, the other piece is, you know, maybe you have more regulation, whether it's whether it's through FERC or NERC that are more insulated from political pressure to do that. So yes, I think that can help as well. But I do think there needs to be a response at the state level. There needs to be a response at the federal level. You know, Congress has often responded in situations like this. So the Energy Policy Act of 2005 Um, which was kind of one of our last big energy policy uh, laws, was after the Northeast blackouts in 2003. Um, And there was a call that said we need to do better in terms of making sure our transmission grid is resilient. And a lot came out of that. NERC grew out of that, that we needed a national reliability organization to oversee everything. So this may result in similar action. I think both at the, certainly will happen at the federal administrative level, but I would encourage Congress to be involved as well, because I think now is the time to do that. So let me 
finish up this conversation by asking you a, a couple of questions about the future. So one question I want to ask is about the, the role of renewable energy in all of this. Um, you know, as, as you know, of course, Governor Abbott quite controversially made some statements at the beginning of the crisis, seeming to blame it on, on wind power. And I think at some point he used the opportunity, uh, I believe he was on Fox, to talk about how this is what the Green New Deal will cause. He's since walked back those statements. But I'm just curious, you know, what is the role, if any, of renewable energy in either this crisis or just in generally the, the issue of reliability? One common critique made against certain forms of renewable energy, in particular wind power, uh, is that they're only active during some times uh, of the day. And so they can't provide the same sort of reliability um, and predictability that, that a grid uh, needs. And so I'm curious if there's any validity to that criticism, putting aside, you know, what the, the Texas governor may have said and more generally what the role of renewable energy is going forward. Sure. Well, it's important to keep in mind that all forms of energy uh, when used to produce electricity are reliable and unreliable in different ways. So at a coal plant, coal piles can freeze and then you can't use them. At the natural gas plants, if you don't insulate the lines and the water lines, those lines can freeze and the gas plant shuts down. With wind power and solar energy, of course, you can't turn it on and off with a switch when everything is working like you can do for those other plants. But what you can do is if you have a big enough region that it's working under, if you have a big enough grid, it's always windy somewhere, it's always sunny somewhere, and you have power demands at different times. So that's why what's exciting is to put together a lot of solar and a lot of wind. Typically, you have solar energy production at different times than you have wind energy production. So those balance out. Battery technology is improving. Costs are going down. Um, so the idea that we could have a lot more renewable energy in our grid is, and we're already starting to do that, is something that, first of all, we need to do to deal with greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. But as technology develops and we get these bigger regional grids, it is a reality. So what, what happened here in Texas is actually the wind turbines did pretty well. The forecasters did not have a lot of wind in their forecast for last week. And even though some of the wind turbines went down, they actually did quite well. I mean, I think the problem is anytime that there is an electricity failure, whether it is the you know fires and heat in California or the disaster in Texas last week, you have those that are opposed to renewable energy saying, oh, this will be worse and this will happen all the time if we move to more renewable energy. Um, and you have renewable energy advocates saying, you know, the, the reason that we're having, you know, all of this extreme weather is because we don't have enough renewable energy and we're still using fossil fuels. Um, what we really need to do is um, really expand our electric grid, build out more renewable energy, and also figure out, you know, we may need to figure out ways to integrate some natural gas into that or carbon capture sequestration. But there's a lot of really smart people doing some exciting work in this area. But just to um, simplistically say, well, if we have more renewable energy, this is going to happen more often um, is just wrong. And then let me let me close by asking you a, a question about climate change's role in, in all of this. And it's sort of impossible to talk about any of these issues without discussing the, the broader problem of climate change. And, you know, we used to call it global warming. Now we call it climate change to emphasize that it's less about just warming and more about you know, changes in the climate generally. You know, is what we saw in Texas do we have enough evidence or do we have evidence that this is tied directly to climate change? And my understanding is that although climate change will cause more variability in weather, that in a place like Texas, the overall effect is going to be to increase temperatures rather than rather than decrease them. 
And again, more generally, does climate change add another impetus for Texas to potentially consider joining the national grid because it's just too difficult for a state, even a large one like Texas, to deal with these changes alone? Or are there approaches that Texas has taken that are actually quite useful in terms of battling climate change and that the rest of the country ought to consider uh, adopting? Well, Texas has been a real leader in wind energy, not because it's been trying to address climate change, but in the 1990s, energy prices were really high. It realized that it had a lot, it had great wind resources. Um, and what it needed was an electric grid within its state to connect those wind energy resources to population centers. So it actually built this um, set of lines. It created these competitive renewable energy zones, CRES lines, and spent a huge amount of money connecting up wind resources and building new ones and connecting those to their major population centers. And ironically, they socialize the cost over the entire state. So I always will joke with my students that even though Texas is its own country when it comes to electricity, it's also a socialist country uh, because it was able to do um, what other regions have not been able to do, but uh, which is to socialize the costs of that transmission grid because all of the costs and all of the benefits were in a single state. When you have a multi-state area, it's hard to do that because sometimes the costs are borne in some states, the benefits are in others, and so you have a lot of fighting between utilities and states about who bears the cost. So Texas did it all within its state, within its own um, unique grid, and it doesn't work as a model for other states because no other state can do that itself. But it shows that if you, you know, build up your wind energy and now solar energy, which Texas is already doing, and you build the transmission lines, you can, you can get a lot of renewable energy into the grid. Its energy markets have also resulted in a lot of coal plants retiring because that's what the market has demanded. The coal plants can't compete. And so they retire in some of the more heavily regulated states. You see a lot of efforts of regulators to kind of prop up those coal plants in a way that just doesn't happen in Texas as much. So certainly overall, uh, we're going to see temperatures rise and we're going to see more extreme heat. But we're also seeing more and more that this rise in temperatures, particularly in the Arctic, is causing changes in the jet stream, which means we are having more of these polar vortexes go further and further south. So even though we're going to see an overall rise in temperatures that's going to cause fires and extreme heat and the sort of thing that we see in California, uh, scientists are increasingly concluding that we're also going to see more of these extreme cold events in parts of the country that don't see that level of cold. So there'll be shorter events, but no less damaging because we don't have the infrastructure. So there's a lot Texas can do on its own, both in terms of renewable energy development and in terms of hardening its infrastructure. But it's, there's also a lot that it can do probably at a lower cost if on the electricity side, it, it has additional connections with the rest of the U.S., in part because of its ample renewable energy resources and also what it can you know, gain from nearby states. So I think overall, there's a lot of benefits that Texas can achieve through connecting with the rest of the country, but still retaining some of its own autonomy. It's not as if it's an all or nothing. It either has to give up all control and turn it over to the federal government. That's not how it works even in other parts of the country. 
but I think there's ways for it to have certain electricity connections with the Eastern interconnection and Western interconnection without losing some of its unique ability to do a lot of its own regulation. Alex, thank you so much for for joining me. That was immensely valuable. And and I really encourage all of the listeners to check out the piece that you wrote for uh, for Lawfare. This is an incredibly complicated area. There's a lot of ideology and politics, uh, and you do a wonderful job of cutting through it and providing a really lucid and clear explanation of the legal and policy and energy issues. So thanks so much. My pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment to rate the podcast or let someone know so they can enjoy it as well. This podcast is produced by Jen Patya Howell. Zachary Frank of Goat Rodeo is our audio engineer. And Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.